do it at the beach with the sound of the waves coming in, but uh, it is God's word. And as God's word goes forward, it will accomplish the purposes that God ordained it. Uh, you can read about that in Isaiah. Uh, God is sovereignly working it together for good. This food is for our nourishment. Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word of God that proceeds from his mouth. And these particular texts are right from Jesus' mouth. Uh, we'll be looking. It's printed for you in the insert. I'm sure it's above uh, uh, my head. But if you have it in your pew Bibles, you'll find it on page 1080. Let us look at God's word. We're looking at chapter 13, verses 24 to 37. But in those days, after the tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. And the stars will, fall, will be falling from heaven and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. And then... They will see the Son of Man coming in clouds and with great power and glory. And then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds and from the ends of the earth, even to the ends of heaven. From the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branches become tender and puts out its leaves, you know that the summer is near. So also... When you see these things taking place, you know that he is near, even at the very gate or the door. Truly, this is verse 30, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things shall take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But concerning that day or even that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven nor the Son, but only the Father. So be on guard. Keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. It is like a man going on a journey, and when he leaves home and puts his servant in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening or at midnight, or when the rooster crows, or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. Will you join me in that bold part again uh, when it says that the last two words, and what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. That was just my counsel so that you won't fall asleep in today's sermon. Let's pray. Dear Lord Jesus, we ask that you'll take this passage that we've heard in bits and pieces, often in prophecy conferences, and I pray that we might know the mind of Christ in Jesus' name. This week, I was so thrilled. I finally got to go to the beach, and I got a little too much sun, but I went, while I was in the water, I got to meet some, some people. Uh, one person actually had a skimboard. The poor guy uh, was skimboarding, didn't know what he was doing, and he shot his board out, and it hit this old lady right between the shoulder blades. <sighs> Ended up opening up a great conversation. A little bit later, we were talking about it from another eyewitness as we were out in the water enjoying it, and these were folks up from Pennsylvania, and maybe you're even in church today. I invited you. Uh, it was a delight to speak with that couple, and uh, but they told me that they were Catholics, and that they don't go to church anymore like the rest of the people they know. Guess what we did out in the water? 
we spent some time with God. I went through the whole gospel presentation and connected some dots that they had never heard before in their Catholic upbringing because they had given up on church and they had given up on a lot of things, even though they kind of still like Jesus and everything else, they just didn't know how it all fits. And today's text, I want to be able to show you how some of these things fit, and I hopefully we'll have enough time before we come to the Lord's table to dine. So please jump in with me. Uh, we're going to look, in order to understand this passage, I want to give you four C's. I want to give you the context, the content, the contrast, and the contempt. And uh, it makes a lot of sense when we walk through it. I I've looked at this before, as I mentioned in my prayer, in some of the prophecy conferences, because this is the Olivet Discourse. Doesn't that sound impressive? Maybe that doesn't impress you. But from a pastor's standpoint, I'm like, I know all about that. <laughs> That's when Jesus is on the Mount of Olives, and he started giving these neat things about the future. So what I want to be able to do is give it to you in bite-sized portions so you can digest it. And, uh, and then I want to bring to a confession as we come to the Lord's table. So the first point I want to jump right into uh, is the context. But like I said, the reason I'm tackling this topic now, as, as uh, some of the elders have come to me and said, Pastor, some folks were wondering, why are you spending that time uh, with Jesus between Palm Sunday and Easter? You know, why, why are you spending the whole summer at that? Those are usually the times we spend right before Easter. Well, the emphasis in this sermon series is the mind of Christ. And as I shared at the beach this morning, in order for you to have the mind of Christ, Philippians chapter 2, verses uh, 4, 5, and 6, you need to know the mind of Christ. And you need to know Christ for him to speak to you, to know what's on his mind, to know how he shares with you these truths. And so I thought one of the best places to go to know the mind of Christ is to go to Christ himself. And I've prayed and asked him, and he showed me to spend time here. For this is when Jesus is at his peak, 33 years of age. He's at prime time because this is when he is going to do the thing that he came to do. If you remember his name, you shall call his name Jesus, for he shall, finish it with me, save his people from their sins. Okay, he came to die, the only person ever born to die. And here he is at 33. He's just about ready to offer himself as the perfect lamb of God without blemish. He's the great high priest, was ordained three years ago, uh, back in the, when John the baptizer was with him, set apart to be this great high priest. And now after fulfilling three years of ministry, and it was kind of in a, in a, a veil, he spoke in parables, he spoke in some, he, he told the truth everywhere, but he was still hiding some of his glory. Because he came not to set up a kingdom like we thought, but to purchase our, our uh, uh, sin price so that we could be a part of his kingdom. Now, when you think about that for a moment, wow, don't you want to know Jesus? There's a lot of people in our culture and in our world today who think that Jesus is just a nice character, but it kind of comes down to uh, what, what C.S. Lewis used to say. Jesus either is a liar, a lunatic, or the Lord. And I want to make the case today that he's the Lord because he knows the future. He can see what's on the horizon, and he engages it rather than disengaging it. So let's look at it. First thing I want to be able to set for you is the context for this passage. This is Mark chapter 13. It's the equivalent in the book of Matthew, uh, chapter 23. Now, uh, when, when you think about all the things that are going on in the Gospels, this is an exciting time. 
I mean, Jesus has just come to town two days earlier because we're on Tuesday night. On Sunday, he came into town. Everybody said, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And I've gone over this a few times with you. I hope you got the scene in your mind. This is exciting. They were thinking that Jesus was going to do something great. And he was. But they didn't quite get it. Sunday, he's there. He goes to church, to the temple. Monday, he's, he comes back and goes back to the temple. Tuesday, he goes to the temple again. And man, you would think that he's a preacher man just like me because I go to church every day of the week too. But he was there with his disciples, and they were expecting something more. On Tuesday night, as they left the church, the context was they left the building, and as they looked back, one of the guys with him, he said, wow, that temple... That building is beautiful. It's awesome. I mean, if you can picture for yourself what it is to see Solomon's temple uh, and all, it's Herod's temple, which is even bigger than Solomon's temple. It was the place that had the Holy of Holies. It was a, a beautiful edifice. If you ever went to Jerusalem back in those days, guess what? You would have been fascinated. It's almost like if you go to New York, you're going to see the Freedom Tower. If you went to Jerusalem, you were going to see that gold-plated building. And as they left Tuesday night, after spending all the day there, one of the guys said, hey, this is awesome. This is a beautiful building. And Jesus threw the curveball and said, not one stone will be left on top of another. I'm just imagining if you, if you just said how beautiful this building was, and Jesus said, it's not going to be here very long, that would have shocked you. And that's kind of the context. So they go through the valley, they go up on the hillside of Mount Olives, and they're looking out over this beautiful area of the, of the eastern wall, and there they have a quiet moment. Four guys, Peter, James, and John, and Andrew, end up saying to Jesus, we've got some questions. So the context for the passage that we are reading today is three questions. Two of them are given, and one of them is applied. The first question is, hey, you just told us about the stones. When are the stones coming down? That's question number one. Question number two, if you notice, there's an and in the text. And then that second question says, and tell us while you're at it, what's the end game? What's the end game? What's going on? Now, if you think about it for a moment, Jesus has already given them some things to be looking forward to. If you go back in Mark chapter 10, verses, uh, I believe it's 32 and 33 and 34, Mark chapter 10, you're going to find that when, when they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, that Jesus was walking ahead of them, and they were amazed. And those who followed were afraid, and taking the 12, he began to tell them what the future is going to be, what's going to happen. If you do the next verse, he said, see, we are all going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And then it says, and they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him, and after three days he will rise. What chapter was that? Mark 10, and we're in Mark chapter 13. Okay, so if I give you the context... The first question that they raised was the one that was just on their minds, which was, hey, you just said every stone's coming down. When is that going to happen? The second question is a broader question, and it harkens back to Mark chapter 10. And they're saying, Jesus, you're talking about the future. When are all these things going to come to pass? When is the end going to be? I told you the context has three questions, because the implied question is not in there but it's almost the one that you and I would have if we were there. Jesus, 
Do you really know the future? Are you really God? If you think about it for a moment, it's a personal question that's saying, are you God? And that's what I want all of us to to wrestle with, even as we come to the Lord's table today. Those two questions are obvious questions on their mind, but the third one is one that should be on our. Now, I told you the, the next point of the sermon, it's not just the context of these questions, but the content of the answers. So let me walk you through the content that Jesus gives back. I'm telling you, if you want to know what's in the mind of Christ, look at the content of his answers. The first question that they asked him about at the beginning of chapter 13, verse 1, is they're they're talking about the stones. Chapter 13, verse 1. Uh, And and when they're looking at Jesus and they're trying to explain this kind of thing, they, they want to know, hey, is this really going to happen? Look, what wonderful stones. If you go to the next verse, you're going to see that, that they wanted to, to figure this all out. When, when Jesus says, do you see these great buildings? There will not be left one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. So the answer to that question comes in chapter 13. And as I was looking at the text there, uh, it's, it's also it's leading up to verse 13. Jesus has been telling them that when the stones are coming down, it's going to be bad. And so the content answers that question about when the stones are going to be brought down on the temple. And then I believe that the second part of the content is answering the second question, beginning at verse 24. And in verse 24, it says, in those days after, or there's a conjunction there that says that there's a transition to a new thought. He says, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will be falling from heaven, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. And then you will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. Now, I just want to step back with you for a moment and talk about the content that was delivered from Jesus' mind. The content. So the first question was, when are the stones coming down? And basically, Jesus says, you guys, if you have your eyes open, you're going to see that there's going to be an abomination of desolation. That sounds pretty impressive. But really, it's hearkening back to Daniel chapter 9. Jesus is saying, hey, don't you know your Old Testament? The the stones are going to come down in accord with the prophecy that Daniel gave, the prophecy that he was given by Michael, the archangel, that God said there's going to be 70 weeks, and this is what's going to happen in those time frames. And it's really awesome if I took the time to explain it to you. But Jesus is answering their question number one. The stones are coming down. And it's going to be a bad time. Somebody's going to come to the Holy of Holies. They're going to stand there and they're going to mock it. And the next thing you know, it's going to be serious tribulation. Now, the word tribulation, it's not the same. It's not transliterated in Greek. It says there's going to be a lot. It's going to be a bad time. And if you look at it, the bad time is going to manifest itself in people having suffering and that there's going to be some warnings He gives them three particular warnings, but he says, this devastation is going to be so bad, you're going to almost wish that you were nowhere near. That answers question number one. And if I could take you back in history, I could take you to AD 70, which is about 40 years after Jesus said these words, that the Roman uh, general, Titus, came into Jerusalem. He came suddenly and swiftly. They came in with their armies and legions. And when they came in, they surrounded the city, and it was awful. 
And when, they, when any of the Jews got inkling that the Romans were coming, they had to flee, whether they were on the rooftop or whether they were out in their fields or whether they were nursing. It was super wise for them to flee to the hills of Judea, get away from the Romans, because the, it's going to be hell on earth. That's when the stones are coming down. Now, mind you, I told you the content is not only of that one answer, it's also of the other questions answered. The second question was the more generic answer. When are the end? When is this all going to work out? The implication from Mark chapter 10, where Jesus had told him about how difficult it's going to be in the future for him. They're going to mock me. They're going to scourge me. They're going to turn me over. Now, if you were walking with Jesus, that just doesn't make sense. I mean, you've just been to Jerusalem for the last two days. You've just stood up to everybody's attacks, and you won today. Every single time they try to trick you, you... You were just amazed at how Jesus over, you know, did a judo. He was fascinating. And now he's, now they're looking at him in this quiet moment on the Mount of Olives, and they're saying, Jesus, when are these things going to be? Now, let me take you to verse 24 and walk you through some of this answer. But when you see the abomination of, de this is verse 14. When you see the abomination of desolation standing where it ought not to be, then he said, let the one who is on the, on the housetop not go down. And that's all the answer to number one. Now, if you go down to verse 24, where I was taking you earlier, but in those days, there's a transition. He's not talking about the same abomination of desolation. He says there's a transition, and he says there is going to be a lot of suffering dealing with the second answer. And he says the sun will be dark and the moon will not give its light. The stars will be falling. The powers of heaven will be shaken and then you'll see something fascinating. You'll see the Son of Man, which is the name for himself, coming in clouds with power and glory. And then he will send out the angels to gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. That's the content. Do you understand that? There's a lot of prophecy guys who want to tell you that they can explain everything. I still struggle. Even when I look at the Greek trying to make sense... When does all this come to pass? But in the mind of Christ, he's only 48 hours, or maybe I should say 55 hours, before he's hanging on the cross. I mean, this is Tuesday night late. And on Wednesday, he's, nothing major happens. But on Thursday, he's going to have the upper room experience where he transitions the Passover with the bloody meal to the, to the bloodless meal. And that's going to be on Mount Zion, which is one of the other peaks of Jerusalem. He's going to be up there in that special room prepared. And when they're done in the upper room, they're going to leave the city and they're going to go through the Kidron Valley over to the Garden of Gethsemane on Thursday night. It's just going to be the same place, just at the bottom of the Mount of Olives. And there he's going to sweat the drops of blood before Judas comes and betrays him with a kiss. And then he gets marched back to Jerusalem to Herod's, uh, uh, excuse me, to, to Pilate's area where he's going to be trapped. And by nine in the morning, the judgment verdict has come. And Jesus is going to be going down the Via Della Rosa to Golgotha's Hill, where they're going to hoist him up and crucify him. It's only 50 hours away. Now, when you understand the content of what Jesus is sharing with his in, innermost disciples, pay attention. Now, one thing that's so fascinating to me in this content is all of the personal pronouns, when you see this, when you see this, when this is, is, is in your eyes. It's really fascinating that Jesus isn't talking about some futuristic thing that's going to be beyond their imagination. He says, you guys are going to live it. 
You guys are going to experience it. And now when you look at the text, it's really fascinating how he says that there's going to be suffering, there's going to be physical calamities, and there's going to be this revealing of the Son of Man in clouds, and then there's going to be messengers that go out to the ends of the earth with the, with the good news to reach the elect. Uh, Pastor, is all that in there? Look at the content. You'll be amazed. Jesus is basically answering this big question about how the end game is going to come to pass. He's looking at these four disciples, and in the Olivet Discourse, he says, guys, he says, the earth is going to really take a shock when this happens. The sun's not going to, you're not going to be able to see the light, the, the moon and the stars, you're not going to be able to navigate. It's going to be so, so shocking. In fact, it's going to be shaking. Wow. Now, I want to be able to give you a little translation of this in just a few moments. But part of the content, after he tells them that, he says, look at the fig tree. Remember, he's already cursed the fig tree. Now he comes back to it. They understand the fig tree, and everyone's paying attention now. He says, when you see the fig tree bring forth a leaf, you know that that's springtime and summer's coming with the harvest. And it was the same way for us today. If you got up at 7 o'clock in the morning to go to the beach service, which I usually do, it was still darker in the morning than it was even the weeks before because we already know that the summer long days are starting to get shorter. You see, now I know, I, I can testify that before long it's going to be fall. You see, that's what Jesus is saying. Just open your eyes up and you're going to see some of these things. It should be plain to you as the fig tree in spring. But after he mentions the lesson of the fig tree, then he goes down and he says, verse 32, but nobody is going to know some of the details. He says, on that day or that hour, nobody knows in the, the specifics. So having said that, I've given you the content. The answer to question number one, which goes back to AD 70, the answer to question number two, which is he's saying, look at all these cool things that are going to happen. He doesn't say cool. But I'm saying if you were a movie maker and you're trying to make all this stuff, man, the imagination you could have to talk about how cataclysmic this is going to be. Now, having laid that out, Jesus was answering question two with this. He says, guys, you're there. You're going to see some of these. Now, the third question that was implied, I'm still applying to you. Do you believe that Jesus is God? Or is he just making this stuff up? And the answer to that question is going to have to be answered before you come to the Lord's table. Now, I told you there was the context, the content, and now I want to give you the contrast. And this is where it really gets to me, because I always thought that when Jesus was standing there and, and he's saying how he weeps over Jerusalem and Matthew, well, in this particular text, he's not weeping. He's explaining to his inner circle and, and, and trying to understand the Olivet Discourse. And I keep thinking, oh, this is when Jesus is going to come back in the future sometime, and I'm still waiting for him to come back. But the problem in the text is that he's telling it to these disciples, and he says, when you see this, when you experience this, when this happens, when you see someone standing, it's really amazing that I believe that the contrast, or, or should say uh, the, the contrast, is that it's not what most of us thought. I believe that since the disciples wanted Jesus to be lifted up and to be great, they didn't expect him to be lifted up on the cross. You see, this doesn't fit with most of our logic and, and our understanding as human beings, especially Americans. 
We think we ought to have heaven on earth and everything ought to be rosy and wonderful. The stock market ought to always go up, you know, and our neighbors ought to always be nice and the lights ought to always be green. And the visitors from out of town will always go home. You know, all that kind of stuff. You expect everything to be great. But you know, all of that is a figment of our imagination because we don't live in a world like that. And praise God, we don't. But what the contrast that I see is that he's already explained to them question number one, and he's telling them about AD 70. But question number two, I think, is not about some futuristic second coming. It's about the revelation of the Son of Man in glory, which is going to happen on Sunday. Remember, it's Tuesday night, but Sunday. And if you start thinking like that with me, Jesus is already telling his disciples beforehand some of the things are going to happen. They don't fully grasp it. And Mark is writing about it 30 years later, and, I, and he's trying to use English words, or not English words, he's trying to use uh, words that he can write down in the Greek to be able to capture what he understood and experienced. But if you think about it, when Jesus was going to the cross that day, on Friday morning, there were some awful things that were going on in the earth. If you turn to Matthew 27, you'll know that the sky was darkened. You're going to know that the earth was shaking. We know that the veil of the temple was rent from top to bottom. I want you to know that it was so staggering when you read what was going on in Matthew at the temple. I mean, it's amazing, all of the anxiety and all of the fear that the people who were standing on the ground looking up at the cross were seeing. And the centurion, the soldier who had the big responsibility, if you remember, he looks up and he says, truly, this is the son of God, because he couldn't explain it in any other way. This is not just some neighbor. This is Jesus. This is the son of man. Jesus calls him. This is the son of God. But he's still not in glory. As he's hoisted up in the cross, you can just remember the words from Isaiah, the prophecy. He says that Jesus would be like a root out of dry ground. He would have no form or comeliness. When we would look at him, we would turn our heads. He was bruised and and beaten. The chastisement of of our peace was upon him. And with his stripes, we are healed. You know, when you look at it, we esteemed him not. He was stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. And we could not even bear to watch. If you were there on that Friday, it was not a good Friday. For the disciples, as they looked at Jesus in ultimate humility, being put to the cross. Now, Jesus was telling his guys, hey, the end game is going to look like this. You're going to see the earth and the sky and everything else almost act like it's not normal anymore. And then you're going to see the Son of Man come in power and glory. You're going to see him come not with, uh, it's, it doesn't say he's not coming in clouds. It says he's coming with clouds. Think about that for a moment. Most of us want to go right to Paul's counter where in in 1 Thessalonians 4, he says that the trumpet will sound and the dead in Christ will be raised and we'll meet the Lord and, and together we'll be with him up in the sky there. But And then we'll be with the Lord wherever the Lord goes. But in this particular passage, it's talking about with clouds. And, and if you go back into the Old Testament, there's a case to be made that every time Jesus showed his glory, every time God showed his glory, it was with clouds. 
Let me take you back for a moment to Chronicles. When the glory of the Lord filled the temple for the first time, David had danced before the Lord with all of his might when the ark finally came. But under Solomon, the presence of God filled the temple and it was like with clouds. You see, when you get a glimpse of Jesus unveiled. Now, I can tell you, Mark told this, told this account that when Jesus stood before Pilate, he looked at Pilate and he said, you're going to see the Son of Man in the glory with the clouds as well. Now, when you think about that real reality, when Jesus rose from the dead, wow, seeing the Son of Man come forth, up from the grave he arose with a mighty triumph for his foes. Do you believe? And then if you look at the next passage, Jesus says, and there's going to be messengers or angels that are going to send to the four corners of the earth. It doesn't say corners. He's not confused. Jesus is not getting science wrong. What he's saying, he says, to the ends of the earth. And if you go to Acts chapter 1, verse 8, I want you to know that Luke picks up on the same concept where he says, you shall receive power. After that, the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to the outermost parts of the earth. And when did that take place? In the first century, as those disciples, they left Jerusalem, they left Judea, Samaria, and many of them on missionary journeys went all over the place. Some to the west, and there's even some rumor that some went to the east. Thomas going that direction. I want you to know that, the, that God had already purposed that before the end will come, that the gospel was going to go to the ends of the earth. And if you're reading in the Olivet Discourse, you're going to see it clearly that he's going to send his messengers, his angels, the angelos. It doesn't necessarily people with wings. It could be you and me if we take the good news to the ends of the and I told you there's four C's. The last one is contempt. And I got to finish before you have contempt on me. Jesus is speaking these words. And I can only imagine if you were Peter, James, and John. Do you think you were sleeping? You're probably hanging on every word. It was amazing. This guy speaks with authority and he's telling the truth. And it's like, man, this is what's going to happen. He was preparing them in advance. But the one thing that you hear over and over and over in these last few verses and I want to read them for you. If you will, open your Bible up and you'll see it beginning in verse 32. But concerning that day or concerning that particular moment, the hour he calls it, he says, you guys, none of us know the exact moment in time. He says, not even the angels that are up in heaven at the throne room. He says, only God the Father knows exactly what, when this is going to take place. Now you're scratching your head and saying, how come Jesus doesn't know? Well, he must be in his earthly body and therefore is shielded from him. That's the way I always thought. But it might be a little different. Because if you look at it this way, he says, for you do not know, verse 33, be on guard and keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. It is like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and he puts his servants in charge, each with his job or his work, and then commands the doorkeeper to stay alert, to stay awake. Therefore, verse 35, stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come, whether it's the evening, midnight, or when the rooster crows are in the morning. He says, verse 37, and what I say, I say to you again, help me out, stay away. The contempt is this. Why does Jesus have to repeat himself three times to stay awake? At the beach, I was picking on Sean there, and I said, it's one thing if I said, hey, Sean, 
And then it would be a little different. Sean, Sean. Just imagine if I'm doing it three times. I was just picturing when my mom used to call me. If you got three names, Robert William Deckard, you were in trouble. <laughs> when I'm trying to tell you this is that Jesus reemphasizes this idea of staying awake three times. There's a measure of contempt in this. And, and this is where the confession is going to come for all of us as we come to the table. Why does Jesus tell them three times to stay awake? He wasn't a boring speaker. This is what I want to show you. It's because I believe that he was telling them in advance of the end game, the chess game, how the, move, the players were going to be moved around, how Jesus was going to become the Lamb of God who would take away the, the sin of the world. And what was the moment where he took away the sin of the world? when he was on the cross, and he's crying out, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, something like that. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It was in those moments that Jesus finally said, it's finished. I've paid it in full. And he died. I want you to know that that moment was not scripted in anybody else's time frame. Only the Father in heaven knew when he was going to be able to pour out his full wrath on it. It was the most heinous thing that could ever be imagined. It wasn't held back a little bit. He didn't go easy on Jesus because he knew him. The full wrath of God upon sin and the wage of sin is death. And God the Father was pouring this wrath out upon him. And Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane on Thursday night says, Lord, is there any other way? He doesn't know exactly the hour. But when the Father pours it out, you wouldn't want to be there. That's what Jesus did. And he was telling his disciples, stay awake. We don't know exactly when it's going to happen. Stay awake, stay awake. And that's why on Thursday night, after they did the, the communion, after they did all those things, he comes to the Garden of Gethsemane and he says to his disciples, can you stay awake and watch with me for one hour? Can you just do that one hour? How many of them did it? And that's, I believe, the contempt. It's because almost all of us, and this is where my confession comes in, almost all of us, have just been content with having Jesus the way he is, with us. He's nice. He helps us when we go through something. But we really don't have that deep relationship. We're ready to go to sleep when we need to be comfortable. We're ready to just be distracted by whatever's going on. And the bid that Jesus bid his disciples, watch with me. Pay attention to what's going on. Don't fall asleep at the door. Don't give up on the task that I've called you to do because Jesus is going to give it to all of his disciples. He says, go into all the world and do what? Sleep? Uh, some of you don't know what Jesus told you to do. <laughs> Matthew 28, go into all the world and make disciples of all nations, including America, including China, including Germany and England, of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. And I will go with you to make sure it's done because he's already said, I'm going to make sure my messengers go to the ends of the earth before it's over. You see it? I believe many of us are more inclined to go to sleep 
than we are to stand. Many of us are much more inclined to be comfortable than to be courageous. Now, what Jesus was just about to do on Friday morning to go to the cross is unfathomable. And all the disciples fled. Um, you might argue that John hung around with, with, with Mother Mary. But they couldn't handle it because the wrath of God was being poured out on Jesus for the disciples too because they needed us just like you and I. We're coming to the table and when you see the cup and you see the bread, I want you to see Jesus. Stay awake for this. He went to the cross, not because you made a deal with him. How many of you promised him something that you would do if he just let you live? I did that once. Temporary faith. Jesus didn't do it because of that. He went to the cross because he loved you. And that's why the word elect is in the text. Until all of the elect on all four corners are all over this globe, he's going to make sure that all the sheep that are his are brought in. And then the end. Brothers and sisters, moms and dads, Jesus paid it all. Oh, stay away. Let me pray. If the elders would come and get together and come on up to the table, I want to lead us in prayer. Dear Lord Jesus, the message that has been delivered, it challenges us to see what the disciples saw, to be able to see the content of what was in the mind of our Savior. Lord, we know that he knew what he was going to be facing. He didn't know the exact hour when the Father's wrath was going to be poured out on him, but he knew why he came. And Lord, it was going to be unbearable. And yet he bore it the dark. Lord, as we come to the Lord's table today, we are called to examine ourselves and to see if there be wicked ways within us. Lord, help us to see that the sin that we have been engaged in, whether by commission or even those sneaky omission, where we just don't do the things that we know that are good. Oh, Lord, I pray that when you bring to light through your spirits working in our hearts, that you will cause us to confess our sin. For we know that when we agree with you about our sin, you are faithful and just to forgive us, even to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Lord, we come to this table now not because we are perfect, but because you bid us to come. You've paved the way. You already paid the price, and now you tell us to come and dine with you. The sweet communion is before us. The cup that you offer us is not of bitterness and herbs. Lord, it is sweetness of juice. Oh, Lord, we thank you for this sweet communion in Jesus' name.